Welcome, my name is Lou, and you're listening to Depress Play. This is a pro-sadness music discussion show, and that does not mean that I am professionally sad, although it, it honestly does feel like that sometimes. It's more like, hey, being sad is fine, and it should not be maligned or disregarded or put in a dirty little box and slid under the bed. We should be comfortable being sad. We should be comfortable being sad around each other. And that is the core, what, thesis at the center of this show. And honestly, music, at least for me, has always been a big part of the catharsis that comes from working through sadness. And in this show, I explore artists whose music, let's say, skews sad. Artists that have helped me through some rough patches and uh, who perhaps have done the same or could do the same for you. Ideally, I just want this to feel like hanging out with your feelings. Let's just chill and see where things go, shall we? Let's just chill and see where things go, man. If you needed a tagline for like dating in your 30s, whoop, there it is. Today's show is about Elliot Smith, a human man with feelings. Now, I'm also a human man with feelings, and in um, 2005, our feelings, that's Elliot's and mine, intertwined when I discovered Smith's music posthumously. Uh, Posthumously? It's posthumously, right? I was 18 at the time and just like really bad at handling my feelings. So me discovering his music was like someone hurling a grenade into a fireworks factory with a gas leak. You know, it was over for me at that point. The new sadness had just arrived to take me away. I mean, come on, I was 18 years old. What could I possibly do? Not fall asleep listening to Christian Brothers with tears in my eyes? Did I not mention I'm a human man with feelings? Elliot, who was actually born Stephen Paul Smith. Did you know that? I get the name change, like, Stephen Paul Smith sounds kind of like a fisherman or a bad NASCAR driver. Maybe both. Elliot started his musical journey in a band called Swimming Jesus with his friend Neil Gust, which is a great name, by the way. Neil Gust. Maybe I just like the word Gust. It's so sort of abrupt, it's almost visceral, but it describes the most innocuous thing in the world. Neil Gust was gay, and presumably just because they were close friends, Smith was once asked if he too was gay. He answered this kind of dumb and 100% invasive question pretty earnestly, and he said that he's not, but vibed a lot more with gay guys, which, I mean, honestly, me too, dude. As much of a, a culture shift as the 90s was, spending extended periods of time with a gay person somehow gave you contact gay in the eyes of the straight world. And uh, as much as it really doesn't feel like it, especially in the past few years, we have come a long way. Smith and Gust swam with Jesus for a few years and then formed Heat Miser, which is essentially the vehicle that brought Elliot Smith to wider attention. If you're wondering what Heat Miser means, 
and listen, buddy, me too. I'm kidding, I've done the research. Heat Miser is the bad guy from a stop-motion Christmas special that aired on American television in 1974. He is described as ogreish and hot-headed, which makes sense as the band's music in the early going is kind of like fringe hardcore sounding. Oh wait, actually, there's <laughs> there's literally a genre for that. It's called post-hardcore. Early Heat Miser had a sort of we've got Fagazi at home vibe to it, which um, I'm not saying to besmirch the band. I'm just giving you sort of an idea of where they were at. Then as Heat Miser goes on, that sound kind of cools off a bit and slips more into the emo sound. And I don't mean welcome to the Black Parade. I mean like your granddaddy's OG emo, sunny day real estate, American football, etc., so on and so forth. Honestly, by their last album, Mike City Sons, that's M-I-C, they're sounding a lot like how Elliot Smith's solo material ended up, just kind of heavier, which obviously isn't an insult. It's just you can see how Smith was shepherding things before eventually breaking out on his own. Honestly, if you have any sort of appreciation for hardcore music or the music that span off of it, then Heat Miser's quite contained little period of activity that they had there is a nice little capsule of the transformation from hardcore to post-hardcore to emo. Like, it's a nice little movement through phases in that small window of Heat Miser's. Heat Miser broke up before their final album even came out. According to Smith, the contract was made up so that if the band did disband, they would each be optioned for solo contracts. But the only person that the record label actually wanted was Smith and were kind of hoping that the breakup would happen so that they could secure him and him alone. I'm realizing six minutes in that I've been neglecting to timeline this process (laughs) and I apologize. You can send me to internet jail when I'm done here. So Heat Miser were formed in 1991 and they disbanded in 1996. That's five years of activity. Now, in 1994, Smith had already begun work on his solo career, releasing Roman Candle. And the following year, in 1995, he released his iconic self-titled album. One that only 11 years later, I would routinely cry myself to sleep listening to because the girl I liked wanted to meet a dude she met online and wasn't sure how she felt about me. Is that relevant to this timeline? You decide. Given that Smith had released like two incredible solo albums, pretty much back to back, All while still part of his band, it becomes clearer why Virgin, that's the record label that had signed Heatmiser, was so eager for the band to implode and just make it easier for them to snatch Smith up. So, 1997. It is a post-needle-in-the-hay-world and we're just crying in it. Smith drops the album that pretty much defined my love for him, Either Or, 
I mean, this, this fucking thing, man, apparently this album was fueled by alcohol and uh, antidepressants. And I don't even drink, but buddy, I am right there with you. As a total fucking idiot who was so deep in his own feelings that he didn't always appreciate the feelings of others. The line, nobody broke your heart. You broke your own because you can't finish what you start. Made me feel both seen and attacked at the same time. If I had a penny for every time I heard the intro to Speed Trials, whilst sat in my shitty 93 Vauxhall Astra, staring into the middle distance and wondering what the fuck I was doing with my life, like I'd have at least eight pennies. This is the album that features Between the Bars, a song that just went absolutely nuclear and launched Smith into space. It remains his most played song. And even that girl who liked some other dude online thought it was good. And she thought Elliot Smith sucked and hated his voice. You know, maybe that was a sign, actually. If we as humans can't form together around Elliot Smith, then what, what are we doing here? What is this human experience that we're a part of? Also, another sidebar for that sidebar. How easy is romance and love when you're like a teenager? When I was 18, if I met a girl who liked the same band or musician as me, we were soulmates. That was it. Like, I've, I've found my one. Oh, you like Jeff Buckley too? Let's get married. Fast forward to dating at 30. And if like 18 or more prerequisite life goals don't align, then you're not even bothering. You're not even swiping, right? Like, oh, you like Jeff Buckley? That's cute. But do you want kids? Uh, Do you have a functional level of emotional intelligence? Do you go to the gym three times a week and keep yourself healthy? Uh, Do you like to travel regularly? Do we have similar views on religion? Uh, Do you have a profile picture that's less than 12 months old? People wonder why I'm single, but those are the same people that settled down in their 20s. They have no idea what it's like out here. We broke up a month ago And I grew up I didn't know I'd be around the morning after To date, Either Or is Elliot Smith's best-selling album at 429,000 copies. However, despite this, it has never charted on the Billboard 200. By the way, it is weirdly hard to find album sales statistics. Perhaps it's just me, but I would have thought that there'd be like pretty hard and fast public records on this stuff, especially considering the pageantry the industry would make on like giving out silver, gold, and platinum plaques to people. But alas, all I can give you. Is a statistic from 2017 on how well either or has sold. And uh, I mean, I think it's safe to assume that needle hasn't shifted a huge amount since then. Not unless like Elliot Smith blew up on TikTok at some point. Hashtag either core. 
The slim new Nokia phone with voice dialing fits the way you live. Nokia, connecting people. We are rolling now into 1998. What a year. We kick this year off with my friend Greg being gifted a Nokia 8210 for his 11th birthday. He has secured at least three girls' phone numbers before we've even made it to lunch. Bear in mind, this was a time when mobile phones, or cell phones for the America inclined, were largely still a novelty. So a kid showing up to school with one was an event that caused just absolute hysteria. Greg was the most popular kid at school for, I'd say, a good solid two days, but he sadly didn't secure a single date with any of those three girls. On the other side of the world, at this same time, Elliot Smith, who probably also had a a Nokia 8210, had secured an Oscar nomination for the song Miss Misery, an original song made for Goodwill Hunting. You know, the, the documentary about Matt Damon. The song then ended up on his next album, EXO, which released in August 1998. By the way, holy moly, the grind set on this man. I mean, be it solo or with his former band, this makes like five years in a row that he's had a new album out in the world. This is only tangibly related, as are, you know, most of the things I say on this podcast, but I admire the singular focus that people used to have. In the 90s, literally the only distraction people had was, was if their house phone rang. You can get, like, a lot of shit done in a world like that. Bon hiver, I have to say it like that, but Bon hiver, who I will likely talk about in future, had the right idea, just, like, fucking off to a cabin and recording an album. It's, it's literally all he had to do there. That and, like, make sure a bear dressed as a postman, doesn't try and trick him into opening the door. In a weird way, I see EXO as like either or part two. I feel like whichever one you listen to first is the one you prefer because they're both quite similar. EXO has higher production value, but not so high that you're like, wow, this is a huge leap. I think the next album, Figure Eight, is where that jump is fully realized. EXO, to me, is like a halfway house between that and either or. That said, and I'll get into this more later on, I think the album's opener, Sweet Adeline, is one of his best songs. Smith has this, like, really uncanny way of starting his albums super strong. And this coupled with the following track, Tomorrow Tomorrow, they're honestly like right up there with his best. To the contrary though, it also has my least favourite song, and that is Baby Britain. And not just because I'm a a self-loathing British person, but because the whiplash cognitive dissonance required to accept that as a middle point between waltz number two never gonna know you now but I'm gonna love you in. and 
Pit Soleil. The silent kid is is actually neck breaking. Plus, I just kind of think it sucks. Like, it really surprised me that that was a that was a single <laughs> that got released. There's some undoubtedly great tracks on XO, but we are really getting into not my Elliot Smith territory with a lot of the songs on this one. I mean, how am I meant to plunge face first into the sad boy hours when every second song sounds like Wish.com Beatles B sides? gotta help a brother out Stephen Paul did you know that those songs are referred to as baroque pop because I shouldn't it's certainly a lot quicker to say than wish.com Beatles b-sides probably not as much fun to say though it's the year 2000 the new millennium Uh, the Y2K virus has not eaten our children or taken a shit on our lawns like Fox News probably told everyone it would. Instead, Elliot Smith has blessed us with a new album. This one is called Figure Eight. And with its release, we are now fully inside Elliot, you don't call anymore territory. We're not even visiting. We're residents. They've even given us a house opposite a billboard for Roman Candle as a constant reminder of what we've lost. Honestly, I don't mind figure eight. To my great relief, it was a lot less Baroque pop than I was expecting. It's almost like going full circle back to Heat Miser's final album, Mike City Sons, but with much cleaner production and wider instrumentation. What resonates with me is that it has the tone and vibe of either or, but on like a much bigger budget. There's still a lot of Beatles in there, but it's no longer Wish.com B-sides. We're getting like the good stuff now. Plus it was recorded at Abbey Road, so maybe he just couldn't help himself. Maybe when you're in there, John Lennon's ghost is constantly looking over your shoulder, annoyingly poking holes in your production, until eventually you just have to make your song Sound like just a little bit Beatles, so that he just pisses off and leaves you alone. Figure Eight closes with probably the most haunting of all of Elliot Smith's songs. It's called Bye, and doesn't really sound like anything Smith has done previously. It feels almost like you're in his house, and it's all wood panelled with like high ceilings and you can just hear him dissonantly tinkle away on the piano a few rooms down the hall and there's like there's normally such a presence to his music but this feels voyeuristic it's a really uncanny way to close the loop on on an entire musical legacy Oh boy, we're about to get into the heavy stuff now. This isn't going to be pleasant for anyone. Uh, this this section deals with mental ill health and, you know, ending one's life. If these are difficult subjects, please do proceed with caution. Elliot Smith died on October the 21st, 2003, at only 34 years old. The 20-year anniversary of his death just passed, actually. Uh, do people have death anniversaries? Is that like, is that a thing? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. 
It's reported that after an argument with his then-girlfriend, he stabbed himself twice in the chest. Because it was left inconclusive by coroners and homicide was never totally ruled out, it's always Mm. been a talking point as to what could have Mm. potentially happened. Ultimately, though, Smith's struggles with mental ill health were quite well documented. At numerous points, he'd tried to end his life. During recording of Either Or, he'd gotten intoxicated and threw himself off a cliff. He, uh, he only survived because he'd impaled himself on a tree below, and while that severely injured him, it broke his fall. He had made this attempt because self-doubt had slowly crept in over the quality of his recordings. Self-doubt that infected his mind like a cancer, to the point that he, he doubted his capability as a musician. This struck me because either or is, like I've said before, to me his best work. It's like the synthesis of that frail and affected sound I'd loved from his previous two albums, but peppered with more creative instrumentation and really catchy melodies. Steve Hanft, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, is a director who spent some time with Elliot Smith documenting him. Uh, he said in conversation with Spin Magazine, Smith was so suicidal he had to wear shades. You couldn't look him in the eye. I met Kurt Cobain. He didn't have that much depression. As far back as recording for Roman Candle, people would talk of receiving late night calls from Smith, saying that he didn't want to be here anymore and essentially like giving parting words. By most accounts, these people sound like they offered support and like encouragement, but even still, for all that talent and all that support, Smith still struggled. Sound engineer David McConnell, who spent a lot of time with Smith in his final years, has spoken about Smith's near-encyclopedic understanding of drugs and medicines. Apparently Smith would self-medicate and experiment with like wild cocktails of drugs and medicines, all inspired by research that he had done. And honestly, so much of Smith's background and his mentality is relatable. He's definitely living on the very edge of these behaviours, but anyone who's kind of struggled to understand and control their mental health problem has found themselves looking for their own answers and solutions, you know, myself included. Smith is an example of someone who had no real limits to how far they'd push that search. He didn't seem to have a cut-off or stop point. I think probably because he was always so ready to just end it all, he saw no reason to hold back or moderate any of these behaviours. And as a result, that behaviour was often impulsive to the point of volatility. So why why am I covering all of these grim and difficult things in so much detail? Well, I'd never known, really, the extent of Smith's inner demons. Before I sat down to research this episode, all I really knew was that Smith was quite melancholy and that he had ended his life in, let's be honest, quite a brutal way. That was it. I've been listening to his music for over half my life at this point and I'd never coloured in that picture. His music always just sounded authentic. Like for me, it walked this absolutely impossible tightrope between devastating and jolly. Each album treads this path that weaves in and out of despair in such a delicate way that you forget how dark the lyrics you're hearing truly are. I am absolute dog ass at playing guitar. 
like every teenager, I tried very briefly to learn, and I got as far as remembering the chords to uh, Skinny Love by Bonivier. And even that was really only to impress girls. I wasn't earnestly trying. I was a simple, smooth-brained doink of a teenager. However, even with that remarkably limited understanding of music, its arrangement, its technicality, I could sense and hear that Elliot Smith had an otherworldly sense for rhythm and melody. What he did with a guitar sounded like five guitars playing at once. And it wasn't just the gymnastics of that, but like the earworms he created with practically every song he made. Just taking either or as an example, not a biased pick, I swear. Every song from start to finish has a unique hook or quality to it. Songs like Speed Trials and Between the Bars and No Name Number Five, sure they sound similar in a real vibe sense, but to say they sound the same would be totally betraying the sense of quiet urgency in Speed Trials. Or the growing swell and presence of No Name Number Five. A parallel universe exists where Elliot Smith cleaned up, both physically and mentally, and had a Trent Reznor-esque arc where he's creating Oscar-winning soundtracks. His music has such a rich complexity and was getting increasingly more theatrical and ambitious from album to album. It makes sense to me he'd end up scoring movies. But we'll never know. All I do know is that within a painfully short 10-year period, he managed to make some of the most endearing and heartfelt music that I'll ever hear. Music that connected with me in a way that helped me make sense of the disconnect within myself. about to do the impossible pivot and raise the mood back up because ultimately this is a celebration of Elliot Smith and his incredible music. So to that effect, I want to share my personal top five Elliot Smith songs. And if you want to share your own choices and what they mean to you, or even like condemn me for excluding your favorites, Please do look me up online. I am at Laozi on most platforms. That's L-A-Y-O-Z-I. Let's argue about something deeply personal and wholly subjective. (laughs) I'm kidding. Let's, (laughs) Let's please not argue. I would love other perspectives, though, so get in touch. At number five, it is Sweet Adeline off of XO. This is such a basic thing to say, but I think this is a criminally underrated pop song. Musically, this song is like absolute joy. The plucky scale intro, the way the chords hop around, the way the chorus sort of bursts through like a beam of sunshine. The real genius 
is that you're having so much fun with this song that you don't even realize the lyrics are essentially about getting loaded up on heroin in some random drug den, all just to deal with the pain of a bad breakup. I'm yet to speak directly to the duality of Elliot Smith's music, but he does this constantly. Independence Day, also off EXO, another song you can just sort of happily hum along to, but to me is coded in finally having the courage to end your life and the relief that that might bring. The real Smith stands out there are going to say, no, 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 wait, wait. He said that song's about a friend of his. But I mean, come on. Do you believe him? This man, who famously and routinely writes some of the darkest songs, and we're meant to believe he just thought he'd make an upbeat song about duty now. Mm, I think it's misdirection, personally. But that's the beauty of music, right? We're all wrong down here, Fred. Or... Will, I can't, I can't remember the kid's name in it. Stevie, number four, Roman Candle, off of Roman Candle. I'm a Roman Candle, my head is full of flames. You better believe this entire album, let alone this song, got a lot of traction when 18-year-old me was thinking about that dude online who the girl I like liked. Well, that was, a, that was a really clunky sentence, wasn't it? Me just seething in my room, tears in my eyes, wishing dude online would get like locked in a shipping container and teleported to Bolivia or something. Of course, there I am, angry crying in a dark room, listening to this and thinking about my dumb, dumb little teenage problems like this song was written exclusively for me. The subject of this song was in fact Elliot's abusive stepfather, who inspired several songs beyond this and is very likely a key component in the mental health struggles that Smith contended with throughout his life. Roman Candle stands out for me because it's one of the few songs where a Smith uh, addresses a subject and his feelings towards that subject head on. And you can feel the venom in his line delivery, like he's singing through clenched teeth. I really love the whole Roman Candle album. I don't know how well it's received in the, uh, the Elliot verse. Like, I'm not really a part of any communities around his music, but it feels like maybe a bit of an afterthought in the oeuvre, which kind of sucks to me because it's the album I probably play most often when I want to chill or stew in some sort of emotion, normally negative, probably because it's so sort of tonally lo-fi. It also just has this dark, angry cloud hanging over it from start to finish, like a fog, and it's reliable. It is reliably low-key. Just, just walk away and that's all you do. 
Number three, Needle in the Hay. All right, bitch, let's get basic. Uh, Listen, I know, I know, what kind of real, that's air quotes, real, Elliot Smith fan would make such an obvious pick? What is the opposite of a deep cut? A shallow cut? Is this a shallow cut? Don't answer that. I don't care. Let me live. Let me be me. The first exposure I ever had to Elliot Smith was Luke Wilson staring into a bathroom mirror whispering to himself or while Needle in the Hay plays and I'm just intoxicated not only because I'm like a pretty miserable 16 year old who feels an odd and morbid sense of connection to characters who have just totally given up but because the song playing and the wafy whisper singing man that's playing it have suddenly like unlocked a door Deep within my soul. So what on earth is Neil in the Hay about? Well, you'll be surprised to hear this, but this is a uh, yet another journey into heroin land with our dedicated drug sherpa Elliot, talking specifically to the lost sense of identity felt during his addiction and how dehumanizing it is to be singularly focused on your next fix. Smith's self-titled 1995 album is probably my second favorite behind either or. I always kind of appreciated how it still had one foot in that Roman candle rawness, while expanding the sound and giving you like a, a preview of what's to come. Coming Up Roses is a good early example of the duality that becomes a staple on later albums, mixing up jaunty and boppy instrumentation with lyrics about being strung out and wasted. Number two, Tomorrow, Tomorrow. This song, to me, is kind of the apotheosis. That's a big word, isn't it? Apotheosis. Don't I sound smart right now? It's the... I can't even say it. The apotheosis of what Elliot Smith is. I'm going to stress this once again, and I could do it a thousand times more, and it still wouldn't be enough. I'm not a musician. I have little to no musical knowledge. Everything I do know is absorbed and borrowed from much smarter and more creative people than I. However, I listen to Tomorrow Tomorrow and I'm like, holy moly, this man is guitaring right now. Every time I listen to this song, I feel like I uncover another layer of instrumentation that I missed before. The way this is arranged and composed is kind of as close to perfection as I hear in any of his music. The way he plays weaves in and out of the rising and falling of his voice. Give another talk. 
As corny as it sounds, it's like he's doing a duet with his with his guitar, as if his guitar was working autonomously and just symbiotically was matching him beat for beat. Lyrically, I like how this toes the line between abstract and accessible. It's also one of like four songs that aren't about drugs, you know? <laughs> I'm kidding. That is reductive. Listen, we are all Elliot Smith fans here. I can poke some fun, okay? This song, as far as I interpret it, and you know, like I said earlier, it's, it's all subjective around here. This song is about the fatigue of being an artist and the way that you're presented. The chorus is a pretty fascinating rumination on this. Smith sings. They took your life apart and called you failures on. They were wrong, they were tomorrow. There's a lot of ways I read this. The first is the demand placed on an artist and their commitment to turning out new art. The second is that you're always one piece of art away from becoming a failure. And finally, that these deeply personal expressions are viewed simply as art that is assigned value, and how difficult it is to bear yourself and be treated like a product or object for dissection. I feel like this particularly is at the core of the Elliot Smith project. He was a man who bled out on every album he made, and each track was like a cut, but he wasn't really equipped with the thick skin to bandage these wounds up. Instead, he left them open, and they'd fester, and sometimes he'd dig his fingers inside them for our pleasure and satisfaction. I talked before about the duality, am I even saying that right? Duality, duality of Smith's creative process, and I mentioned earlier how tormenting and self-doubting an experience the creation of either or was, so much so that he tried to end his life. But a similar duality seemed to exist within Elliot Smith, the person. A lot of us have one thing we're good at, and maybe that one thing is the most important thing in the world to us. And maybe that one thing is all we know. But what if that one thing also invited negativity and vitriol? What if using that one gift opened you up to attack and criticism each time it was exercised? Without the tools to tune that out, you're left like a, a snake eating its own tail, especially if the loudest, most hateful voice is the one in your own head. At this point, you might be thinking like, wait, I thought his favorite album was either or he doesn't shut up about it. He said he wasn't even that hot on XO, and he's got two songs from it in his top five. What year is this? Who's the president? Why am I naked? Listen, calm down and put some pants on. Well, you know, don't. I, I don't care. Live free and die hard, brothers and sisters, because here is number one. It's Speed Trials. I honestly can't tell you how many times I've heard this song in my life. It became the anthem of night driving to and from parties, girlfriends' houses, midnight runs to 24-hour supermarkets with friends, 
All of the locomotive meandering of my night-dwelling youth is like intrinsically linked to this song. Like a Pavlovian response, I would get into my shitty 1993 Vauxhall Astro, which I've already named dropped once, and before even putting on my seatbelt, I'd slip my either or CD into the stereo, that jangly, not down-tempo, but also not up-tempo intro would kick in, and my mood and my night would be set. This song was present in and around the most formative events of my young adult life, and it's special to me in ways that are really hard to tangibly express. Plus, you know, it's a really fucking good song. It's such a good song, in fact, that there is a a literal thesis by literal, real university professors literally talking about how galaxy brain complex not only this song is, but other songs in Smith's catalogue. I'm going to keep it 100 really real for you right now. I started reading the essay and it was immediately too hard for my shiny smooth brain to catch on with. From my severely limited understanding, it's about the tonal ambiguity of Elliot Smith's songs and how the kaleidoscope of major and minor chords make it hard to define whether his music is happy or sad. And like how it shouldn't work, but does, scientifically or theoretically, I guess. If, very unlike me, you are a musical theory nerd and you do actually want to read it, Google, and let me make sure I read this title right, Google Tonal Pairing and the Relative Key Paradox in the Music of Elliot Smith. Honestly, I have little to no idea what I just said, but it all seems quite interesting. And if you do know what I just said, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I know when I was anecdotally recounting my connection to this song, some folks were probably like, oh, right, yeah, it's called Speed Trials and it it makes him think about driving. Or what is he, 12 years old? Uh, Firstly, ouch. (laughs) Secondly, that is pure coincidence, I promise. I think more so the reason this became a staple of my life in the way that it did was because lyrically, it encapsulated everything I was feeling. My read on the lyrics behind this song are of chasing fleeting eyes. the impermanence of getting what you want, of the stubborn self-assuredness that one might have, that what they're pursuing will make them happy, even if others quite rightly warn them otherwise. These emotions I personally churn through between the ages of like 18 and 22 over and over again, especially as someone who had the most tenuous grip on my mental health. I would pursue ideas convinced they were answers only to get what I want. And after the dopamine cells realized there was still a cavernous gap where I was hoping that satisfaction 
would live. After further trial and error, as you do at that age, I worked through that feeling. And I'm not on the other side of it yet, and I quite possibly may never be. But I understand myself a lot better. I mean, I guess you could say I can spot my own speed trials. I'm sorry. Either or was Smith's last independently released record before signing to DreamWorks. In my uh, non-musically adept brain, I, I feel that comes through. I mean, I feel the edge on either or in a way that I feel was kind of sanded down for EXO. The sounds got bigger and the productions got tighter, but it felt like the albums beyond either or were taking Smith step by step further away from what connected, at least me personally, to his music. I can listen to Roman Candle like Elliot Smith is sending me personally a series of voice notes over WhatsApp. Last call, he was sick of it all, asleep at home. Like the, the intimacy of that album is a tether for me. I listen to figure eight and I see a studio. I see a group of people hovering around a giant control panel. I see a large glass separator and I see Elliot Smith dwarfed in the space opposite, probably sitting cross-legged, probably restlessly tapping his foot, squinting to see if he's being signaled to go again. To wrap this up, I think whether you like Roman Candle or you like figure eight, if you're a pre or a post major label fan, the through line, the thing that ties it all together is authenticity. Unquantifiable, intangible, I'll know it when I feel it authenticity. Smith imprinted his whole being onto his music and he lives in these albums in a way that artists since him rarely have. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Depress Play. Holy moly. The script for this was over 5,000 words long. I never even wrote college essays that were 5,000 words long. I mean, that probably speaks more to me just being a bad student, let's be honest. Elliot Smith's music means a lot to me, though, so I had to, I had to go hard on this one. Finally, please like, share, review, comment. I don't know where this will end up, so... Any combination of those things would be great. You know, just press all the buttons below the video or the, the audio, wherever it is. Except for the one that thumbs down it. I mean, unless you don't like this, then I guess you can thumbs down it. But if you did like it, please avoid that one. But press all the other ones. And uh, lastly and most importantly, be well. And I'll see you again soon.